to just uh, praise you, worship you, Lord. We thank you for a, a book like Judges. It shows that uh, we don't have a religion, but we have an, a, a God that is actively involved in every area of our lives, Lord, in, in the messy parts and in the good parts, Lord, that, that you're there and, and you're moving in the, in the middle of the brokenness and sin in this world, and, and you have a plan to redeem things, Lord. Bless our time, Lord. Teach us. Help us, help us see our own sin, our own idols, Lord. Reveal them to us, and, and then all, at the same time, Lord, just help us see how much loved and accepted we are in Christ Jesus, even though we are so sinful, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, today we got two big things to do. We're going to have to intro the book of Judges and cover three chapters. So I'm going to try to move very quickly. But the main theme that we see in the book of Judges is found in, in chapter 17, 6 and 21, 25. It's actually how the book of Judges ended, ends. But a major theme in this book is that, that the that the, in those days there was no king of Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, right? So there was no king because they rejected God as their king. And because they rejected God, they, they go off and, and they depend on themselves. They seek to be their own king. They live life on their own terms, right? They do it their own way as they reject God. And so these are stories about what happens, right, when people do what's right in their own eyes and reject God, right? And what we see is this downward spiral in the book of Judges. It gets worse and worse and worse, and it leads to chaos when people do what's right in their own eyes. And so you might ask, well, well why, why does this book of Judges matter for us? I, I think it matters majorly because things move very fast, in life. Life goes fast, and, and, and it doesn't take long for, for your sin to spiral downward into chaos, right? To destroy our lives. That's, that's what sin does, right? When sin conceives, James chapter 1, it gives birth to, to death, right? And so we got to take sin very seriously, and that's what we see here. And I, I think another thing is our, our mindset in America is very much the same as we see in the book of Judges, right? The, the American mindset or, or just, just living in our culture, our world that we live in is that we do what we want when we want, right? No one has the right to tell me uh, what to do or not to do. If it, if it feels good, it works for me, then no one else can, can tell me anything, right? And, and sometimes we'll add, I can do right, what I want when I want, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. But those are themes that we see, see, we see here that all the time, right? And so, so the judges, the things that we see here, is it's nothing new. It's not the first time. It's not the last time people did what was right in their own eyes. The, the thing, another major reason is, is this is a major gut check to the church. Because as we read these stories, this is the people of God, right? This is not just the world. This is God's people, and, and so it's, it's, a, it's a warning for us as a church that this can happen in the church, all right? So, so it's very applicable to us. Now, 
Uh, what I wanted to do to start this series is, is help us understand where the book of Judges falls in the biblical story. Right? The Bible tells one story, and, and oftentimes when we read the Bible, we can read a book like Judges and be like, who are these people? Why does it matter? How does it, I mean, what a, it means nothing to us unless we understand it in the context of God's story. Now, the big picture of God's story is, is broken down very simply into four parts. Creation, you'll see there. Fall, you'll see redemption is right in the middle. And restoration. Four parts in God's story. Now, it, now you can break down each of those pieces, you know, uh, to and understand them and unlock them even further, right? So right now, if you look in this, in God's story, we're living in the time of God. God's created the heavens and the earth, right? Fall, man rebels against God and, and brings sin and brokenness and death into this world. And, and the good news is God has a plan to redeem his world, right? And we're going to look at, at, at the beginning of God's plan, the story of Israel, redemption initiated. I'm going to talk further about that right now. But what, where we live is we live in the, the time between redemption accomplished. We live in the church age, right, where, where Christ has already come. Christ lived the perfect life. Christ died the death we deserve to die, and he sent his church into the world, right? He blessed us to be a blessing. He, he sent us to be his witnesses. And we're, we're living in that in-between time between that final restoration where Jesus Christ returns and, and judges and restores all things, right? So, so as we look at the book of Judges, we're, we're going right into that part, redemption initiated, right, where God begins his plan. Where all these things that are pointing forward to the coming of Christ are happening. That's what we're looking at. Redemption initiated. And that initiation starts with, with uh, Abraham, right? God's plan of salvation starts with Abraham. God calls Abraham and, and calls him to go to this, this foreign land. He, he promises to Abraham that he's going to bless him to be a blessing to all nations. He tells Abraham that even though the, even though his, he was old and his wife was barren, that they would have uh, many children, many descendants that would grow into be a nation, right? There would be this great nation, and God was going to give them this land, which is what the, the, what's going on here in the book of Judges, is, is it's them moving into the land, and that God would, would uh, the future Savior, right, Jesus Christ would come through this family, the family of Abraham, the people of Israel, that's why the Old Testament talks about Israel so much is, is all that stuff is pointing forward to the coming of Jesus Christ in God's plan of redemption. After, so what happens is after God gives Abraham these promises, Abraham never sees them fulfilled. He never sees them fulfilled. God's people end up in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. And if you know the story of, of Moses and the Exodus, God sends Moses and, and brings his people out of slavery, saves his people. And, and, and in the time of Moses, they, they're, they're a nomadic people. They, they wander in the, in the desert for 40 years until Moses dies. And, and, and Joshua is the next leader over Israel. And he's the one that leads God's people into the promised land. He's the one that, that leads the, the battle, right? The, the conquest to drive out the Canaanites and, and take the land that God has promised them. And that's really important. 
right? That they, that they were called to, to drive out these people and their idols and out of this land. And, and what you see in the book of Joshua is that the Lord fights for them. The Lord fights for them. And, and as they trust in God, they, they win battles. And when they don't, they, they, they don't succeed. And uh, so over all this, you, you might struggle with, with these ideas of, of battle and war. But, but what you have to know is that God was bringing judgment on the people of, these, of this land. God had been very patient with them for, for 400 years. God had been patient with them. And God is now bringing judgment on these people. That's why we see the conquest. But we also see that God is also providing for his people. And he's teaching them and, and he's shaping them as they have to re- rely on, on him to do things that they could never do on their own. And so if you can't, some people struggle with this, this idea of judgment, right? And the war that's going on here. I want to show you, Judges 1, and we'll pick up in verse 5. I want to show you that Adani Bezik, we see the story of him. He's able to accept it. It says here, they fought, in verse 5, they found Adani Bezik at Bezik and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adani Bezik fled, but they pursued him and cut him uh, and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Brutal. And Adani Bezik said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my, my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Right? So here's this wicked king, Adani Bezik, 70 kings. It means he's been out doing some very wicked things, right? He's been chopping off thumbs and big toes, and, and they've been under his table like animals, eating his scraps. And, and what, what you see is this, this statement here by Adani Bezik is that he understands that what is happening to him is God's judgment, and he's able to accept it, right? So we have to be able, as we get into this book, we have to be able to accept that God is a God who judges, right? That God is a God of of wrath and justice. And, and if we, if we have to accept it. If, if Donnie Bezik can accept it, we, sh- we should be able to accept it. Right? And if you can't accept God's judgment here, you probably won't be able to accept it anywhere, and you're going to have some major problems. All right? So that's what's going on here, this conquest. And so the book of Joshua ends where the book of Judges begins. Right, they 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 really can merge. They merge together, and so the book. Here's how the book of Joshua ends. He's exhorting the leaders of Israel. He's exhorting them to to remember the the land that God has given them. How the Lord had fought for them. He's exhorting to them to remember God, to cling to Him, to to obey His law. He's telling them not to marry other nations and and worship their idols, and and He's warning them that if they do these things, that God's going to be angry with them and God will judge them. And the people in the end of the book of Joshua, they respond positively. Three times in chapter 24, they say this, We will serve the Lord for He is our God. In verse 18, verse 24, 21, We will serve the Lord. 24, 24, The Lord our God we will serve and His voice we will obey. Right? It sounds, sounds great enthusiastic, exciting. The people are going to obey God. They're finally in the land. Uh, the, book of, uh, it was, the book of Joshua ends like the last 
day of church camp. I don't know if you've ever been to church camp or summer camp, and the last day everyone's crying, I love you guys so much, man. It's going to be awesome. When we get home, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to change the world. And then they get home, and what happens? Two weeks later, everyone forgot, right? They're all, they don't even wake, can't even wake up for church anymore, and, you know, off in craziness. That, that's how the book of Joshua ends. And so, when we see, now when we come into the book of Judges, we see uh, it's uh, the first few chapters, the first two chapters are overview. Chapter one is, is Israel's side of the story of what happened after Joshua died, and chapter two is God's assessment of what really happened. All right, so chapter one, you see the continued conquest as they go in to, to take these lands and drive out the Canaanites. You, you see it, the chapter one, if you, when you, if you read it, you'll see it started off very successful and, and, and it got worse, right? And so when you read chapter one, you tend to, tend to read it, you can almost read it as, wow, they did pretty good, you know, they weren't perfect, but, uh, you know, Israel kind of provided their spin on the story to, to describe uh, how it went. But what we see is it's, it's filled with excuses, especially as you get to the end compromise, idolatry, and, and failure to trust God. And six times you'll read in that chapter 1 that they failed to drive out the inhabitants of the land. They failed. You see that they, uh, they couldn't drive them out because they, were, they weren't trusting the Lord. They were not relying on the Lord and His strength. And they were trying to do it on their own strength. And so they fail. And uh, you see this kind of idea of this, this half, they half-heartedly follow God. They don't wholeheartedly follow Him. And so that leads to their failure. And so as we get into chapter 2, we see God saying, well, what happened? God's assessment is you disobeyed. So let's pick up in chapter 2, verses, verse 1 through 5. Here's what God says about chapter 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim. Now some people will, will say that this is a, a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Christ. It, it, the angel of the Lord, you often see that language used for, for God. And uh, it says here, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land and, that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochum. And they sacrificed there to the Lord. So right, the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate Christ, shows up here, delivers the verdict that they failed right, to drive out the inhabitants. They, they failed to break down their altars. They've intermarried with the people. And in essence, God's people have become Canaanites. They have become like the world around them. They have synced with the culture around them, which is a major problem for for Christianity, right? The Christian church is as we become 
just like the world. There's no distinction. There's no separation. The consequence, God's never not going to fight for them anymore. He won't drive them out anymore. The people will now become a, snore, a snare in their, in their side, thorns in their sides, right? Their gods will be a snare to them. And so the people will become enslaved by the very people they choose to live with, right? And, and the gods that they choose to worship. They enslave. They, they choose their slavery. And so this is one of the most powerful examples in all of the Bible of how sin is slavery. Sin is slavery. You think you can control it, right? What begins as an act of freedom ends up enslaving you. Idols, we think they serve us, right? But we serve them. They control us. So, so that's what the verdict there. So, so what really happened after Joshua died? There's a very important statement found in, in Judges 2.10. It says, There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that He had done for them. So they failed to pass on the faith. They failed to pass on the a love for God, for Yahweh, and, and obedience to this next generation. And so a half-hearted generation, right, this this generation that's only following God halfway, the next generation now is faithless, which is a, a, a huge warning for us as a church, right? And uh, I would say it's uh, not that the people completely forgot. Like, there's no way that they had no idea who God was. There's no idea that they didn't know about Abraham and Moses and the Exodus. I, I, I I guarantee you they, they knew about these things in their head, right? They had a, a head knowledge of, of these things, but they hadn't affected their heart, right? So what they knew in their head wasn't real to them in their heart. They didn't love God. Although they might have known some stuff about Him, they didn't love Him. They didn't love Him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. It wasn't a, a, a faith. It wasn't a relationship with God. And that's what it means that they did not know God. Right? They didn't know. They didn't know the Lord. They didn't love God in their heart. And so an illustration of this is I, I, I have a friend who walked with the Lord for, for many years. And he got into this uh, a relationship and, and it fell apart. And, and he just kind of floundered, walked away, walked away from the church and, 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 and just been struggling. And, and there's been many times where I've spoken to him and I'm like, dude, what? What's going on, man? Like, when are you going to come back? You know, Christ forgives you. He loves you. You can come back, and, and he can restore you. And so I've been calling him to come back. And, and every time I hear the same thing from him, he's like, yeah, I, I mean, I know what's right. I still, I still believe in God. I, I know what he wants me to do, but, but I can't do it. Right? There, there's this major disconnect between what he knows right, in his head and what he knows in his heart. Right, and because of that disconnect between the, the head and the heart, it, it, it affects his hands, what he does with his hands. Right? You can't live for Christ and truly obey him unless the, the head and the heart are connected, and then your hands follow. Right? So that's, what, that's where he's, he's struggling with. 
And that's what the people hear, right? There's that disconnect between what they know and, and, and their heart, right? Really knowing God and, and not just knowing about him. The rest of chapter 2 then explains the judges cycle. All right, I, I want to I describe this cycle. This is a cycle that happened repeatedly over this, this 400-year period. What would happen there is we would see uh, Israel would sin. They would do evil in the sight of Yahweh, which would lead to servitude. The, Yahweh would send a foreign enemy to oppress Israel. Right? That, again, you see God's judgment. Right? God judges both sides. God sends judgment, and they end up in slavery, servitude. Three, supplication. What would happen is people would cry out to the Lord, right? They, they'd repent. They'd ask for help. They'd ask for God to meet their needs, and God would send salvation, right? Yahweh would raise up a, a judge, or, or the, what that means, that word judge means deliverer to, to fight for them and to rescue them. And then you would see silence. The land would, would experience rest. They would have periods of rest after going through this cycle. And, and what would happen is, then when the judge died, the people would again do evil. And the cycle would begin all over again. That's the, that's the cycle. And it would end, it would get worse. That's a major thing to understand. Each cycle gets worse until you see the end of Judges. Horrible tragedy, okay? Let's look at chapter 3, uh, verses 7 through 10. Then God gives us uh, the first example of the judge's cycle, okay? We see here in uh, verse 7, this is it's telling us about the judge Othniel. It says, and the people serve the Lord all the days uh, Oh, I'm looking at the wrong, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong chapter. Chapter 3, verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord, their God, and served the Baals and the Asherah. Right? So first you see sin. Right? They do evil, they worship idols. Verse 8. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan, Rithmiatum. I don't know how to say that. You just read it fast and people think you know what you're saying. <laughs> king of Mesopotamia, and the people of Israel served Cush and Rishmetham eight years, right? They're servitude, servitude. God sends a foreign enemy. Verse 9, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, right? Here's supplication. They're crying out to the Lord. The rest of it says the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenes, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rithmetham, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rithmetham. Salvation, right? There's the deliverance that happens. He prevails. Verse 11, so the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Canaan, died. Silence. All right, that, that, and so that illustration, that first illustration is to show us the cycle, all right? So what, what does this mean for us, all right? What does this mean for us? Uh, we often, the first, here's five points. We often think, I can't, 
but God says that you won't. All right, so if you see Israel's perspective in chapter 1, verse 19, they say, we could not drive out the inhabitants because they had, had iron, chariots of iron, it says. Right, so the, their excuse in chapter 1 is, we can't do it. Right, these guys are too strong for us. But God's perspective says, in verse, chapter 2, verse 2, that you have, disobe- oh, you have disobeyed my voice. Right, that you have not obeyed. So it wasn't a matter of, of they can't, but it was a matter of they won't, right? And in, in our lives, our sin is not a matter, uh, and our obedience to God is not a matter of we can't. It's, not, it's a matter of we won't. We use uh, I, the, the excuse of I can't, right? It's an excuse for our disobedience to God. And so in temptation, right, we'll, We'll, we'll say, I can't resist doing this even though I know it's wrong. But in 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that God always provides a way of escape from out, uh, out of temptation. Right? That there's always a way out. That there's no sinful thought or action that we're unable to resist through God's strength. Right? Through the power of the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature is what the Bible tells us. So if we don't resist sin, it's, it's most likely that we're, we'd rather keep sinning and use the excuse of, I can't, right? And so what we really need to say is, we won't. And the thing, great thing we need to beware of is sin has this great addictive power, right? We already talked about how sin leads to slavery, right? We see this picture. And so, so something that that begins with an excuse of I can't really will lead to I can't when it becomes slavery, when it becomes addiction in our lives, right? As we use that excuse, then we, it, it, it ends up enslaving us. And so through our own strength, we, we, we might really say, be saying I can't anymore, right? At first, it was an excuse. Now I'm enslaved to this. And, and by my own strength, I, I can't come out of this. And, and that's where it, it causes us to, us to have to cry out to the Lord. God, help me. <laughs> I need help, right? We need to get help and, and confess our sins and, and, and humble our sins enough to, to, to be accountable to someone. And ask God to to deliver us and, and give us His mercy and, and transform us. Because when we're stuck in that addiction and slavery, we can't, but we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength, right? So that's when we have to cry out for, for our deliverer, our, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to, to bring us out of this cycle of sin. Another, uh, another excuse we might use for say I can't, there's many of them, is for forgiveness, right? Many of us might say, well, I can't forgive them. How can I forgive them? And, and we're, we're using the, the excuse of I can't. But what we really mean is I won't, right? Because I want to hold on to this anger. I want to hold on to this, this bitterness. I want to hold on to my right to, to pay them back, to make them suffer. So there's many things in our life that we can use the excuse of I can't. The second thing we learn here is that we must teach new generations 
about God and His saving work, right? It's our responsibility as the church to, to pass on the faith, right? Within two generations of, of Moses and the Exodus, Exodus, these people had forgotten. They didn't have relationship with God. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are we as the people of God doing to, to train up the next generation? And that's why, I mean, children's ministry is so important, right? The, the children's ministry we do here. Redemption crew is, is so important. We're trying to pass on the faith. And, and so I, I want you guys to know that those of you that are doing children's ministry and redemption crew, sometimes it can be like, oh, man, what am I doing here? These kids are maybe they're not listening. Uh, uh, this is frustrating. Sunday after Sunday, I'm having to volunteer. But I want you to remember that, that what you're doing is vital. It's important, right? I, I would hope that this would encourage you to, to see the work that you're doing. It's not babysitting, right? It's passing on the faith to the next generation. And, I, and I'd like to thank all you guys, everyone that's doing children's ministry. It's, it's often a, a thankless job as you're off and no one knows who's up there, no one knows who's doing it. So, so thank you guys for coming early, staying late, preparing, you know, it's a, it's a huge blessing. And I think uh, we have to remember also that parents have the primary responsibility to pass on the faith to the next generation. It's the parents' responsibility. And the church has come along, right? We're here to, to guide and assist and, and to help you as parents. But it's your responsibility ultimately. And so the greatest thing you can give your children is your own vital relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the greatest gift you can give them, right? They, you have to see, they need to see you loving God, right? If, if you're half-hearted in your faith, like Israel, right, and you kind of do the Christian thing over here, and then over here you're doing your own thing, they're going to see that. And the next generation is faithless, right? So they need to see you loving God. They need to see you worshiping and praying, and, and reading your Bible, and you should be doing these things with your children. They need to see you also uh, confessing your sin, asking for forgiveness when, when you are harsh with them or, or, or angry or frustrated, right? They, they need to see you confessing your sin and repenting and seeing that, that you take sin seriously. That's how the faith gets passed in the next generation. We can't and I think another thing is, is, is they, they need to see you living in community with the church as well, right? The, the, the church is important. God's people are important. Sharing the gospel is important. All these things. You can't just expect the, the church and, and the school to raise your kids for you. So you should take that very seriously. Like, uh, we could have a, a faithless generation and, and the church dies. That's what happens. Three... We see that idolatry is a real threat to the people of God. It's a real threat. So immediately after showing us that the people didn't know God, that generation in verse 10, and in verse 11 we're told that the people did evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals. And so we know human hearts are, prone, are, are never neutral. All of our hearts are always worshiping. We always worship someone or something or even multiple things. We're created to worship, right? We're created to worship God, but, but sin turns that, that the worship that we're, is designed for the creator to the created things. That's what Romans 1 tells us. And so 
idolatry is not a small sin, right? In here, it's, we're told that idolatry is evil. Think about that. We often don't think of idolatry as evil. And it's compared to prostitution. In, verses, uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 17, it says that they, they hoard after other gods, right? And so it's given, it's given us this, this picture of, uh, of bringing a prostitute into the marriage bed, which is a, a horrible, ugly picture, right? Because that's how bad it is. And so idols in our culture are harder to see, right? They, they tend to be very hard to see because uh, we don't have a golden calf or we, we don't necessarily set up altars in our homes but they're real. And so we, we have a little slide to show you how some of, some of these idols might look for us. It might be the idol of, of comfort, right? I center my life around comfort, and I do everything I can to just have a comfortable, easy life, entertainment, and anything that interrupts that, right? I'm angry or I'm frustrated, maybe even angry at God because, hey, I'm supposed to be comfortable, Right? It might be pleasure, where we, 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 we chase after pleasurable things. Uh, it might be security or control. Maybe, maybe you find security, you can, you can feel safe and in control of your world by the more money that you have in your bank account. Right? And it, it, maybe it, it, you feel secure and in control by, by getting more insurances, Right? That, that's what we're looking for. It might be approval. Maybe you're, you're constantly looking for approval from other people and, and you fear men, men, men and women, what, what they might say about you. Right? These are all idols that are alive and, and well in our world. And so all these things are not necessarily all bad things. That's the, that's the hard thing about this. None of these things in and of itself is not a bad thing. But when good things become God things, right, when they take the center of our life, when we're living our life around it, we're worshiping and serving these things, then it becomes a bad thing, right? When good things become God things, they become bad things. So uh, how do you identify idols? Just a few questions to think about, all right? Uh, What do you think about most? I'd encourage you to write, write some of these things down. What do you spend your time and your money on? What do you worry about? What are you angry about if you lose or you don't get it? Maybe you're got mad, angry at God or others or your family, right? Or your kids for, for uh, ruining your fun. What are you afraid of losing? Is, any, is there anything in your life that if God asks you to give it up that you would say no? If there's something in your head that pops up in your head like, all those questions that you think keeps popping up, that's your idol, right? Four, we're vulnerable to the same cycle of Israel, right? How many times in our life have we, we gone off into sin, right? We, we go off into sin and, and disobedience. We do what's right in our own eyes. And then it leads to, to tragedy in our lives, right? We become enslaved to this thing. It brings a lot, of, a lot of pain and heartbreak in our lives. And then we, we cry out to God, right? God, save me. If you, if you help me get out of this, I promise I'll never do it again. 
right? And then God, because he's gracious and merciful and, and nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ, right? He pours out his grace and his mercy and he, and he redeems us and he helps us out of that, right? And then there's this, this time of silence and peace in our life. And then we go right back into the cycle, right? <laughs> I know we've all done that. What if, and, and the good news is, you know what? We can't out God, right? Nothing can separate us. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the good news. And so there's grace at the end of these cycles. But what if we could avoid the pain and the cycles and the headaches of going through this, right? Life's hard enough without us, with, through our disobedience and sin, making it worse, right? What if we could avoid these cycles, I want you to think about that. And, and God's given us resources to avoid those cycles, right? The, the Spirit of God, the people of God, the Word of God. We need to cling to those things, right? To those, those means of grace, God's prayer, right? Prayer, those, those are things that can help us avoid these cycles. Or, and if we're doing them, it'll help us come out of that cycle quicker, right? As we see, oh man, here, here's what's going on in my life, right? But I'm praying God convicts me, I repent, and before I, I, it leads to a bunch of pain and destruction in my life, I'm getting out of that faster and faster as I mature in Christ, as I rely on Him and His resources. That's why reading your Bible and praying is so important, right? We don't just say it because we want you to do a 15-minute devotion and feel good about yourself. <laughs> this is how we walk faithfully with God. And it can save you and your family a lot of pain and heartache. The, five, the number five, and I'll end with this, is we need a deliverer who won't die. Right? What, what we see is after Othniel died, I mean, Othniel delivers them. There's 40 years of, of peace. He dies. Cycle begins again. And so, so we need a, a, a deliverer who won't die. And, and the good news is we have one. And his name is Christ Jesus. He's the one that we have to cling to. He's the good news because I think one of the hardest things about the book of Judges is how much it points out our sin. Right? And I think it's, it's good for us to see how sinful we are. Right? We need to see how sinful we are. And as you grow in your faith, you don't see that you're, you're less sinful. Right? What God reveals to you is that we're more sinful than we ever dared imagine. That's what you see as you grow in Christ, right? It's just, man, how, how, much, how, how many idols I have and, and the pride and, and the greed that's in my heart. So we see how great our sin is, but we also see as we mature in, in Christ is that we have a, a, a Savior who loves us in spite of those things, who loves us and accepts us, and we see how great His grace is for us. So, right, we see how sinful we are, but but way above and beyond that, how much Christ loves us and, and wants to change us and forgive us. So that's the good news. So we need this Savior that won't die. Let's cling to Christ. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I, I just thank you, Lord, for this series. I'm excited to see what you're going to do in our lives, Lord. Help us, Lord.